on today's show. I started to think, you know, maybe Hinduism, Buddhism, any of these karmic-based religions, maybe it's not so much a religious construct as much as it is human. We, we interpret life through a covenant of works, so to speak, probably because we're made, we are Adam's children. There's just something about it that affects us. And I think in Christianity, if we veer from the free offer of the gospel, both to save and to sanctify, I think we tend to veer into some sort of works-based righteousness or works-based assurance or karmic formulation of a relationship with the Lord. Stay tuned. Greetings and welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Communications and Media with ABWE, joined as always by Scott Dunford, pastor of a new church that he's pastoring in San Mateo, California, which the name is escaping Western me Hills because Church. you're throwing me off Western Hills yes. Church in San Mateo, California. You know, you get in the routine of introducing somebody the same way so many times, and I know I'm going to slip up one of these days, but Scott, good to have you back as always, and it's good to have you back. If you're a first-time listener or viewer or if you've been following the show since day one, we're so glad you're here. Let me put in one plug real quick. If you have not ever taken the chance to leave us a positive rating and review in your podcast platform of choice, or maybe you're watching us on YouTube, but you haven't subscribed to ABWE's channel. Go ahead and do that for us. And that's because the more that we do those simple things, the more that people can see the content, be blessed by it. And we're even talking before we started recording with our current guest uh, about some fun things that algorithms do that might even be evangelistic. Maybe an unbeliever is going to get exposed and is going to hear about the gospel, right? We've got a uh, interesting way that that happened with our guest who, Scott, you're going to introduce for us, aren't we? Well, I, in some ways he needs no introduction. Uh, Dr. E.D. Burns is on our show now for the fourth time. So any success we have, I think we can probably just attribute to the many times he's been on our show and talked about all sorts of uh, far-ranging topics related to missiology and theology. And uh, he's serving currently in Thailand and has long experience in missions, working in in a multitude of different cultures. And so that gives him, I think, a unique avenue to speak on his current book that just came out called Karmic Christianity. Wonderful title. Uh, certainly, that that's kind of what Alex, was, I think, was referring to a little bit earlier, is that you said later earlier, E.D., that it was hit, hit number one in Buddhist studies, even though it's not a Buddhist studies book. Is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping somebody picked it up to to read about how Christianity teaches on karma and hopefully they finished it on their knees repenting. So that's, we'll see. I live in Fremont, California. Um, to tell you a little bit about Fremont, I think we've got more uh, Indian restaurants in Fremont than all the other restaurants combined. And the, the park near my house is completely dedicated to cricket. So it tells you a little bit about the Hindu influence in my city of Fremont. It's completely, uh, it feels like it's, it's almost completely Indian. And of course, if it's Indian, it's almost all Hindu. So the idea of karma comes up a lot. And this isn't the first time. I think Americans are a little bit obsessed with this idea of karma. A few Alex is probably too young for this, but 
uh, he, he hung out with his parents a lot. So he tends to get my, uh, my, my, uh, exer, uh, humor. But do you remember ED, uh, there was a show, uh, called my name is Earl, right? Yeah. And it I was out on TV. Was, do you remember my name yes. is Earl? And he was, he was always like fighting karma. You know, he's always trying to do these good works to outdo the bad works that he did. And it just seems like Americans, even though, uh, we're, we're, a pretty Christian nation by world standards. We're kind of obsessed with this idea of karma. Um, so, you know, why do you think the Americans are obsessed with karma? Well, I think it's, it's not so much um, a well marketed spirituality as, as much as that's probably plays into it. At least the use of the name is it makes sense to our, our humanity. We, we all have kind of a, deep down inside a retribution religion, some sort of tit for tat relationship with higher powers and, you know, spirit energy. Um, it's just, it's kind of the mathematics of the universe in the spiritual realm. I think people just, they think, well, there's, there's a cause and effect relationship in the immaterial realm. And I think they just slap the name karma on it. And it, to be sure it, it kind of is karmic because it's, it's very meritorious though. They may not use that word. Um, I think it's just very human and a very natural to interpret reality that way. So if you're watching us, and this is another good reason to subscribe on YouTube, I've got in my hands here a copy of Karmic Christianity by our friend E.D. Burns here, Finding Peace by Faith Alone. And the title is provocative, and I love that about that. I'm, I'm a sucker for a good provocative title, E.D., but... Uh, what what do we mean by combining these two things together? So so we understand that American culture, yeah, is is affected by this idea of and and is it really an Eastern concept of karma or is it like you're saying we're just slapping an Eastern word on something mm. that's maybe even deeper and more primal? How we all kind of have this tit for tat spirituality that that is ingrained on us as a result of the fall. But more to the point. How did this get caught up in Christianity? Why would you put those two words, karmic and Christianity, together? In what sense are there Christians that you're seeing that are falling into this karmic way of thinking? And what do you mean by that? Well, so I serve in a Buddhist kingdom, and uh, many of the questions my Buddhist background believing pastor friends ask are related to uh, karmic sort of thinking. So, you know, if I do this, level of obedience, God will bless me at this level of rewards. If I sin and secretly, and then I crash my motorbike, well, it must be God getting back at me for some secret sin I did. And I, I, I started hearing various scenarios, but then when I traveled, I, I don't just teach in Thailand or even Southeast Asia. I, I, I teach in Africa and I've worked in Bush, Alaska and other parts of the Middle East and so on and so forth. And I started to hear similar sort of interpretations of degrees of whether or not God loves them or degrees in whether or not God is displeased with them based upon some sort of detached, maybe habit, sinful habit or sinful disposition. But then I began to realize it was true of my own soul and how I started to interpret kind providences of the Lord based upon maybe some unrelated obedience in my life. And, and I began to realize, you know, this is, this, this is karmic. And I, you know, that's what they call it, at least in a, a Buddhist context, but it's, it, it, it really gets Christians tied in knots, especially in terms of their assurance. And um, I think what, mm. what I observe even in scripture is that Job's counselors 
are kind of the classic karmic counselors. They they look at Job's suffering, which is strange in God's mysterious providences, and they they're like, you know, Job, obviously there's some sort of secret sin in your life because all of these things you wouldn't you truly aren't that righteous or these things wouldn't have happened to you. And they start to try to decipher the mysterious, puzzling providences of God in Job's life. And, you know, it, it's it's not comforting, it's not encouraging, and it's not true counsel, um, but it's deeply karmic. And I, I started to think, you know, maybe Hinduism, Buddhism, any of these karmic-based religions, maybe it's not so much a religious construct as much as it is human. It's just... We, we interpret life through a covenant of works, so to speak, um, probably because we're made, you know, I mean, we are Adam's children. There's just something about it that affects us. And I think in Christianity, if we veer from the free offer of the gospel, both to save and to sanctify, I think we tend to veer into some sort of works-based righteousness or works-based assurance or karmic formulation of a relationship with the Lord. Mm. I can remember being in high school and, and my, my friend's dad would sometimes go on these hot streaks playing basketball. And, uh, you know, I look back and I thought he was so old then, but now I realize he was younger than I am right now. Um, but he'd go on these hot streaks in basketball and his sons would always say, oh, you can tell dad had his devotions this morning. And we, we even though it was a joke, right, there was like what you're describing there of this mentality of this input, you know, receives this kind of output. And, you know, hey, if I was missing my free throws in basketball, it was probably because, you know, I had a thought life problem or I didn't read my Bible that morning or I'm not sharing my faith appropriately. And that does plague Christians and especially in this area of assurance. So I'm glad you're addressing that. Uh, before we go deeper into that discussion, though, I, I want to back out because this is a good opportunity to talk about just these cultural paradigms. Recently, Alex and I have had, have had a number of discussions about honor shame. That seems to have been uh, it's been around for that, that discussion has been going on for a long time, but but recently has kind of come back up in missiological circles. Uh, certainly, guilt innocence, um, and you're kind of highlighting in this area of of fear and power. Can you talk a little bit about that? What is the fear power paradigm? How does it usually show up, and then how does it how does it come out specifically? as we think about these kind of issues relating to relating to karmic Christianity. My, my proposal is not a fear power paradigm, but as I, as I say in some of my previous books, um, it's a fear peace paradigm. And I, I think power is, you know, the tool that achieves peace, but fear and peace are, they are, you know, on the alternative ends of the spectrum. And so my proposal in this book, and I say from the very first chapter, is it's, it's not fear and power, it's fear and peace. God uses the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection to obtain and impute peace to us through faith alone. And I, I think, especially in karmic backgrounds, in karmic religions, people are more, you know, if, if there's a flash flood in a local village here, there, it's bad karma, apparently. And they're not looking so much for power over the demons as peace from the demons. Mm. And um, that's how uh, scripture even treats the, you know, the antithesis to fear is peace. And to be sure God wields power to achieve it, but the end result and the end goal is peace. So I, I reframe it. I don't necessarily throw away all fear and power conversations. I just don't think it goes far enough. Um, 
And so this book is, is actually kind of my attempt to reframe that paradigm altogether in a more applicable, helpful pastoral way. But I do touch on it in the transcultural gospel to some degree. I like how you transition that from, from fear power to fear peace. But I do think there's a little element there of like of control. You know, we want to have control over these events that are going on in our lives that seem so out of control. There's, there's such a difference between me trying to put inputs in that get God to do what I want him to do or to be able to control, you know, the, the craziness of this world in some way versus peace that just is content with allowing God to be in control. The emotional effect of being in control is a manufactured peace. Um, it's, it's fleeting. It's not stable. It's not, it's very subjective. It's very made in your own image, but the peace of God that comes from his sovereign control, um, is objective. It's fixed. It's external. It's outside of you. It's sure the lust for control, uh, control freaks, we might call them. The illusion is a, you know, a manufactured controllable peace. It's not so much that people want just pure authority and pure control, though that, that is a insatiable drug for some people. But by and large, and then for the normal person, I think they create a sense of assurance and restfulness knowing that they're in control. Because I think I think there's something about the unsettledness of fear that control is just the logical way to get rid of fear, which means they're at rest or they're at peace. And for background, I want to bring in uh, some of the context to this conversation and then take us a little bit further along. We're talking about some other themes that you've written about, E.D., in books like the Transcultural Gospel, where you have done some work to challenge. We're, we're talking about the fear-power paradigm. There's also the honor-shame paradigm. Uh, there's these multiple cultural lenses that missiologists tend to look at non-Christian cultures, unbelieving cultures through. And you locate conformity to moral law at the center of all of those. You'd say these are different ways of describing what happens when people fall into this sort of tit-for-tat mindset. Uh, you used a phrase earlier, though, that I, I don't want to slip away. And it's a phrase that we were using even before we hit the record button in our conversation before the show. Uh, and that's the phrase of a, a covenant of works. Many of our listeners will immediately know what we mean by that. If that's not a term that you're familiar with, um, let me just read one excerpt. This comes from uh, both the, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration. These are reformed documents. Uh, they state in chapter 7, paragraph 2, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Now, the, 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 the Baptists in their second London confession had different language, but a similar concept. It's this idea that in the Garden of Eden, man was originally put into a works-based covenantal arrangement with the Creator that if he were to perfectly, perpetually obey, eternal life was the result of that. And you can see that in Scripture. You can build that case that what's going on there. But really, I think what's underneath this conversation and this book is the fact that that's still our default factory setting, is to think that we can somehow earn salvation. And of course, we can't. And that's the gospel, is this new covenant based on grace that is this free gift of the gospel to all who would 
believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but our factory setting, our default is to think that we can somehow earn it. And you see all sorts of harmful things coming from it in unbelievers' lives and from believers' lives when we engage in that mode of thinking. And so my question for you then is, you've been all over the world. ED, what are some of the ungodly ways that you've seen people deal with this desire, whether it's to have control, whether it's the desire to have inner peace or power, whatever that is, though, uh, because we're coming at it by default with this works mentality, what are some of the harmful and negative ways that you've seen people individually and collectively pursue that, uh, that burden you to write a book like this? To be sure, they're sinful, they're ungodly, they're unrighteous. But I think just, and, I, and again, I'm, I'm even speaking autobiographically, uh, but I think there's, there are seasons of Christian growth where we, with the best knowledge we have and the best data we have of scriptural teaching, we're just doing our best. And we're, our default setting is sometimes just our best, but it's obviously it's not good enough because, I mean, even our best, you know, as John Bunyan said, even my best prayer is shot through a sin so much that it would damn me to hell. You know, I mean, even our best deeds are not sufficient. So I, I, I approach them not so much, well, they're, they're wrong and they're, they're walking in sin as much as it is. I think they're just languishing in a gospel-less yeah. desert and there, there is an oasis of goodness in the in peace in Christ to be received as a gift through faith alone. And so just some some examples, some illustrations, anecdotes of what I've observed in my own life personally and just in colleagues and friends is okay, so I, I think most of us are evangelical enough to admit that we are saved in conversion, justification in that punctiliar time, that point in time through faith alone. I think most of us are probably evangelical enough to admit that. But I, but then we go on in our default setting is to add on to our faith, some level of faithfulness, of loyalty, allegiance, something to maintain God's favor, at least in a blessing sort of way. As though there are all these temporal blessings that are potentialities. Um, and we, we read the promises as though they're potentials. And so then, so this is in my world, I'm a missionary. This, this book is not a missions book, though it's written from the perspective of somebody as a missionary. We, we read, for example, just in my own world, God has promised people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to redeem people someday in the new heavens and the new earth who will be there. And so as missionaries, we can go in confidence knowing that there will be people that will come out of this language group. But, um, for whatever reason, we we then add on to obtaining, laying hold of, achieving those promises with some sort of faithfulness degree. Like, well, you know, we we need to claim the promises. We need we need to be obedient, and and as if we need to speed along the promises, or we we must do something to enact or release these blessings that are promised to us. And and I. I it's, it's especially common as in activistic, and I, I mean that not in the social justice sense, but just the activistic outreach missions oriented world where to their credit, they have big hearts and they have, you know, burning, bleeding hearts for the world. And they just, they want to transform Bangkok or they want to redeem the culture or they want to do this or that and all these big, hairy, audacious goals. And if they're just, if they can just unite in prayer, if they can just, you know, 
believe without any doubting if they could just get enough Christian leaders in a city together to to mm. to bind the enemy and cast off you know this the spirit over this city or the spirit of unbelief in the city and, and if they can just really 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 surrender all this time and really believe it in their hearts without doubting altogether then God's blessings will flow and his promises will be made known to such and such city and I I just mm. think it's just exhausting and it's just some trying to manufacture what God has promised will happen when Christ returns to set up his perfect kingdom. I just think we, we get the cart before the horse. And you think about Abraham, he's given these promises and he lives as a nomad in the land of promise, not building the city, but looking to God, who is the city builder. And he's, he, you know, he could have said, well, I'm, I'm here. I'm in the land. I've got all these promises. Well, let's get her done. Let's build this city. Let's get it going. And yet he lived in light of the promises never never trying to achieve them but only looking to the promise giver to receive them so that's I, i'm trying to encourage especially those activistic burned out people who are trying to achieve the promises their promises their promises right they're not mm -hmm. potentialities they're promises so receive them through faith alone and maybe we will experience partial blessings or kind of a, a flash forward of what is yet to come in this life maybe not but we all together, according to Hebrews 11, whether those who died in faith and those who suffer or the, who triumph in faith, we all will receive the promises together in the resurrection. And so I'm trying to encourage a, a, a restful activity, a restful contentment in, and glad heartedness in God's promises that doesn't discourage activity, but encourages a, a restful spirit mm -hmm. in activity. That's beautiful. It reminds me of something I was just reading, uh, this last week, I've been reading through, rereading re through Pilgrim's Progress, which every time mm. I pick it up, I'm always reminded what a beautiful book that is. Oh, uh, and, so good. you know, it just gets out of the, the swamp of despair or the slow, slow slew of despond or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I'm reading a more modern version because I'm that way. And, uh, of and he, despond, yes. yeah. So he's, he's heading down and worldly wise man comes to him and says, you know, you're going the wrong way. It's so hard the way you're going, just head over there to this little, the village of morality, you know, and, and it sounds so good and so easy. And he heads over to the village of morality and there's, you know, Mount Sinai towering over him and he's full of fear. And, and, uh, it, you know, it, it brings to mind some of the things you're talking about, right? This is, this is the way of the world. This is, and this is the way our minds and our, our actions, uh, just naturally tend to drift unless we bring it under control to, by the power of the gospel. And so I, you know, you, you spend most of the book kind of unpacking some of these ideas. So, you know, just going to kind of tee you up. You can take this however you want to, but how does a full understanding of the gospel uh, really getting down into the nitty gritty of who we are, as opposed to this village of morality, which our world is calling us to. How how does a full understanding of the gospel free us from the treadmill living of moralism? Mm, that's good. I think we're we have a, enough evangelicalism in, in us to at least know the proverbial justified by faith alone. But I but I think um, there's a lot of confusion as to kind of the the stages of the gospel. So there's, there's the, the work of Christ to, to achieve salvation for us. And then the gospel is good news based upon the historical theological event in Palestine 2000 years ago on a Roman cross covered in blood. And then there are the evidences of the gospel 
um, in a person's life, like fruitfulness. The, there is the um, implications of the gospel, and then there is the goal of the gospel. And so I, I think parsing out the the, the different um, layers, spheres of what the gospel is, implies, and points us toward, um, I think if we can at least clarify those things, we, we won't conflate, say, like the mission of the church with the mission of Christ or the mission of God or um, the promises of God in the new creation with the promises of God in the here and now and already not yet state that we're in. Um, so I, I think if we, if we can have, I, I, sometimes I, I wonder if we even know what we're talking about when we talk about like gospel centered, this or that, this or that, but if we can at least hmm. clarify, you know, this, not that, we we mean this, but we don't mean this when we use the word gospel. I, I think it will help people have more realistic expectations of what now in the 21st century on this side of the ascension, on this side of the return of Christ to expect and what not to expect. And, and then labor in light of the already not yet, but um, don't don't burden yourself with what Christ has promised to do upon his return. That's helpful, and it's it's funny you bring up the gospel-centered movement because I was just listening to an analysis this week, kind of a post-mortem on that movement. Now, obviously, it's not over, and you know, at face value, gospel-centered, sure, who doesn't want to be that? But as far as a, a social movement among evangelicals, we've really seen some things die and splinter off, and this was getting into a lot of the reasons for that, and this particular analysis one of the claims that was made was, well, it really didn't know what to do with God's law. And so mm. as so many controversies uh, came into the church over the last few years, it didn't necessarily have a great interpretive grid for, for what do we do with that. There was the, the sanctification controversy, right? Do we, do we progress in holiness by thinking about our justification harder and harder? Or do we bounce back and forth between law and grace and and how does that work and there's there's a lot of bad approaches there's also a lot of nuances that's necessary in this conversation i really appreciate what you're bringing to this conversation which is that idea of restful effort which is what i think is so critical and one thing i i'd love you to speak to this because what I, what i want to do is you know i I, th I think we all agree that this needs to come into our evangelism this needs to come into our missiological approach that we're we're not just speaking to people that we're trying to convert to our view as Christians. We're speaking to people that are programmed for works and performance, whether that's a very laid back system of works and performance and moralism, I'm just going to be a good person, or if it's a very rigorous system, like an Orthodox Muslim or, or a Buddhist, someone who is genuinely striving in that direction, that's still the default programming and we're bringing an entirely new way of thinking. Now, if you listen to the show, you understand what we're about and our mission of promoting that gospel of grace. That's not new. Where I think we have to focus, though, is on holding up the mirror to ourselves in Christian ministry and the ways that we imbibe those thought forms. And so I want to kind of just read a little bit from a psalm, actually, if I could do that, and just get both of you guys, get your thoughts on this. Here's what's interesting. Psalm 85. Now, a few of us here at ABWE were just working through this text this morning. So I want to verbally process this a little bit. And I know we're kind of deviating from the plan here, but this is a psalm and you can pause the podcast and read it on your own at this point. Uh, but this is a, a psalm where 
the the sons of Korah are are grieving and crying out to the Lord over the disobedience that's in the nation and then the judgment from God that's falling on the nation as a result of that, right? But then the psalm says this in verse 8, let me hear what the Lord the God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely, folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And so he cries out to the Lord for an open heart uh, to receive the Lord's will, his word, his instructions, and also for salvation. His salvation is near to those who fear him. And then this, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness mm-hmm. springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. In other words, uh, obedience happens. Something changes in this prayer. O- o- obedience happens. Uh, performance, imperfect, but but efforts to obey, right? Righteous, upright living, uh, godly living happens as a re- result of this psalm. I think it reflects the way in which, uh, yes, we find grace and forgiveness and salvation in Christ, but it doesn't end there. It goes on to, and he's working that obedience out in us. And so what are some ways that we can strive to obey, to see faithfulness spring up from the ground uh, without falling into that trap of of legalism, of, of karmic Christianity, uh, but also recognizing we should strive, we should perform, we should achieve as we serve our Lord. And restful effort, I think that's that's a part of it as well. But how do we maintain our feet on the gas pedal in the Christian life in that way. The way, the way I kind of approach this is that the problem is, is when we interpret mysterious providences, whether they're positive or negative and attach unrelated obedience or disobedience to them as the cause factor. Um, Now the Bible does teach that there are temporal occasional blessings attached to a life yeah. of obedience. I mean, Proverbs is all about this, right? The the book of wisdom is on this kind of stuff. And, you know, and then, of course, like some of the Puritans would re- read that as a, as a warning. Train up a child in the way he's going to go, and he's not going to deviate from it. Like, you know, let him follow after his own heart. So there's, you can read it positively or negatively, but that's that's just the thing. Is some people, um, well, they, this is where legalism comes in, is we start attaching, and I I'm, I, I say, say as much in the book, but we start attaching specifics like steps like okay well if you you know spank your child with a switch for so many years then you'll have this outcome oh your child is rebellious uh, you must not have spanked him enough when he was a kid or you know send him to classical school send him to homeschool and you know what he really should be a missionary in the secular school or whatever whatever we have all these these specific little hmm. rules to achieve general wisdom principles in Proverbs. This is just as an example, but this is where I think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this is what I'm talking about is it goes beyond obedience and becomes legalism. Legalism is making a Mm -hmm. law based upon man's law. There's, I mean, of course we need to be obedient. Of course we need to meditate on the word day and night and pray without ceasing. I mean, that's, this is what I'm talking about. That's the implication of the gospel at work in you. It it is not um, the gospel, but it's the fruit of the gospel in your life. But it's when we start, making these weird little rules about how much is enough before you can start obtaining the blessings of God, how much you need to really, really, really mean it or how much, you know, I could sing of your love forever or have crazy love or be wild at heart or whatever your, you know, the book is that you're reading the, you know, the book de jour, um, you know, whatever it is, 
we, we need to get rid of all these little specifics and do our best in obedience to what God has given, resting in Christ's imputed righteousness, our positional righteousness, and know that God will generally, there will be blessings for a life of obedience, but occasionally there's going to be mysterious providences and Mm. we don't have to worry about God punishing us. He punished Christ. He purifies us, but he doesn't punish his children. It's, it's disciplinary. It's not Mm. penal. And so, um, you know, we, we got to get rid of that sort of that retribution religion um, because it, it hamstrings us into a fear oriented religion, which is not biblical and it's, it's not necessary. No, that's, that's really helpful because we do tend to think that way. And, and then you meet Christians that are just so, so their faith is shattered sometimes because I did all the things right. Or um, they're so self-condemning because clearly I made a mistake somewhere along the way because the promise was this and it didn't happen this way. And I think, you know, I think, you know, you, you're bringing it up now and the fact that we're talking about as people in ministry, think of our missionary friends that are serving around the world that are that are maybe analyzing their ministries and going, Hey, things aren't going the way I want it to go. Or even looking at their kids and going, um, you know, I, I thought I did everything right. And my kid still doesn't love Jesus. And it's heartbreaking. Of course we want to see our kids. And the truth is the older we get, you know, Alex has younger kids, but he's already seeing this. The older my kids get, almost all of my children are adults now. And and when I see good things in them, I'm realizing, wow, that was an act of grace uh, because I see so many things that I wish I had done better or or different. Um, but that's so helpful that we can just trust the Lord, understand his gospel. His grace is enough for us. We can't manipulate the situation. Um, and we just we can rest in peace knowing that God's got this and and anything good that's going to come of it has to be from from the Lord. So I really appreciate this emphasis. And I think this is going to be a big help to a lot of people in ministry and just young people starting to think about their faith and, and kind of detach themselves from this, this uh, karmic Christianity, as I, I love the way you put it. Alex? Totally agree. The name of the book is Karmic Christianity, Finding Peace by Faith Alone by E.D. Burns, released through William Carey Publishing. So go on over to missionbooks.org. Uh, you can get it on Amazon as well, but go ahead and just get it straight from William Carey Publishing. That way, Amazon doesn't necessarily get to have their cut. Ed, we always appreciate your expertise. Uh, as you guys were talking earlier, and we even got into Bunyan a couple of times, uh, this came to mind, thinking of that image of Christian on his pilgrimage uh, dealing with with Mount Sinai. And and uh, uh, not only in the text, there's a there's a movie version of it as well, and the animation's a little bit cringy, but actually this part of it was done well in the film for children, um, and it brought to mind this text from the hymn Praise for Redeeming Love that we'll end with here, and it's this. It's the first verse. Let us love and sing with wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. And our God has indeed crushed the law's loud thunder. He's crushed not only karma and all of those false worldviews, but even Sinai, right, which is built on truth and yet still condemns us, man. And that's what we've got to walk in. And so, E.D., thank you for bringing us that truth today. And thank you for joining us, whether you're watching or listening. We appreciate that you're a part of the listening family. The Missions Podcast is an outreach of ABWE. To learn more about ABWE, head on over to abwe.org. While you're there, Hit the blog and podcast tab there so that you can also tune in 
to Cloud of Witnesses, the newest addition to the ABWE podcast lineup. We are super excited to not only be talking in theory about these missiological principles, but also to have a show where we're doing a deep documentary style dive into the testimonies and lives of people who have taken that plunge of faith onto the mission field in the past. And so we're excited to be releasing Cloud of Witnesses just launched a few weeks ago. Go ahead and check it out or go to cloudofwitnessespodcast.com too if you haven't yet explored that new resource from ABWE. Uh, to learn more about the Missions Podcast, go you can go to missionspodcast.com and you can hit the support tab there as well to help us out. Of course, the best way to help us out is to share and leave a positive review and share it with a friend that helps put this show in front of other people who can be blessed by it. Well, until our next episode, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon.